You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 10th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme, Russian forces make advances in eastern Ukraine. With reports, Moscow now controls the Ukrainian town of Soledar. We'll get the latest as the battle intensifies. Then we get a roundup of the day's newspapers from Zurich, including a look at the latest scandal rocking the Vatican. And we continue our series on soft power. Today we look at sport. What Qatar and the 2022 Cup remind us of is the inherent dangers associated with raising international awareness of yourselves and trying to gain soft power, but also really using sport mega events in order to achieve such an outcome. All that ahead, plus we check in with our fashion editor ahead of PC and Milan's Men's Fashion Week. That is all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. The UK Ministry of Defence says Russia has likely taken control of most of the salt mining town of Soledar in eastern Ukraine. Battles between Russian and Ukrainian forces have been going on for months. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said in his address last night that there is almost no life in Soledar with no whole walls left. Joining me for more is Stephen Diel, writer, broadcaster and Russia analyst. Welcome to the programme. Stephen, how concerning news is this? It is undoubtedly concerning for Ukraine because it's a sign that the Russians are pushing back and they're certainly not um, not close to defeat in that part of, uh, of Ukraine. Um, it's less the on the ground in, in Solidar, as you mentioned. Uh, President Zelensky said last night there's virtually nothing left and no one living there. It's the fact that it is, as you also mentioned, a salt mining town. Um, now, that's not because the Russians are running out of salt. It's because as a result of these salt mines um, and gypsum mines also in the area, um, there is a whole network of underground tunnels, large. We're talking about large underground tunnels, something you could drive a, uh, a truck or a tank through, that sort of size. Um, and this is worrying for both sides, whoever controls these, because these tunnels go far um, and rather like in the First World War, where tunnels were used to dig underneath the front lines of the enemy, and then and then they could be they were blown up. Um, this is this is the worry. So that's particularly worrying for Ukraine. If if Russia gets control of this network, um, then uh, they they have this risk of Russians being able, as it were, to sneak in behind them. Um, either to come out and, and attack them from behind or to blow them up from underneath. How good of a picture do we actually have about who's in control of the town and what's been happening over there in recent weeks? Do you, for example, think that Russia has somehow got better in fighting? Um, we don't have, obviously, we don't have a very clear picture. It's a classic example of the, the fog of war. Um, we know that Russia has made moves in that direction and um, the Ministry of Defence, the British Ministry of Defence, clearly have their sources uh, close to the ground who are able to give a general picture. Um, but it does suggest that um, Russian fighting has improved in some ways. And this is most likely thanks to the, uh, the, the Wagner so-called private military company uh, set up in a country where private military companies are illegal, of course, in Russia. Um, 
uh, by a man called Evgeny Prigozhin. Um, and Evgeny Prigozhin is a particularly nasty character. Um, we had videos of him which went all around social media about six months ago, going around prison camps in Russia and offering uh, prisoners the chance of their freedom if they would come and fight for him for six months. And we think around about 40,000 prisoners took up this offer. Now, these are some of the nastiest characters in, in Russia. These are people who, uh, men who are in jail for 25 years, perhaps, for murder, for rape, for really vicious crimes. Um, and they were told that if they fight for six months, they would then be granted their freedom. So indeed, this could really backfire on Russia as well, because if these are the sort of people who they fight for six months, they survive, they go back to Russia, they're free. Um, these are exactly the sort of people that society does not want wandering around. So, but of course, it means that they are very vicious fighters. Uh, and uh, that's probably a major reason why Russia has made some gains in this area. Tell us more about the role of Wagner Group in this war and why it makes sense for President Putin to to almost delegate the warfare to an organization like this instead of using the Russian army. That's a very good question, but it's largely because because they're so vicious and uh, we've all seen how vicious President Putin has made this war. Uh, the attacks on civilian infrastructure. Um, again, recently there's been more missile attacks and drone attacks to try and uh, make people live without electricity or heat in, in the middle of the winter. Um, so President Putin just doesn't care about people. He doesn't care about Ukrainian people, of course, but he doesn't really care about his own people. And the idea for him that these hardened criminals are going to go in and give the Ukrainians as hard a time as possible suits his uh, his uh, plan very well. And Prigozhin uh, has proved how just what an awful man he is. Um, there was a recent video published of one of his uh, one of these former prisoners who'd been fighting for him, who then defected to the Ukrainian side, but was then made part of a prisoner swap to go back to the Russian side. And Prigozhin actually put on social media deliberately a video of this man, Yevgeny Nuzhin, his name was, being killed by being smashed in the face with a sledgehammer. I mean, it's just so vicious, it's, it's difficult even to talk about it. Um, but that is the kind of Prigo man Prigozhin is. He also then said this was a beautifully made video and this man, this dog, got a dog's death. Um, so that's the kind of viciousness that Ukraine is facing. And that's why the, the Wagner group have been sent in, in, in uh, not only where they are now. They were trained before, as it were, in, in Syria. They, they carried out acts of awful violence in Syria. Um, they've been around for some years. They've been also training and, and fighting in, in, uh, in Africa. Um, it's because many of the conscripts that now make up the, the Russian army that Putin said wouldn't go to the front line, but nevertheless have, are untrained, are simply not fighters, whereas the Wagner Group are definitely vicious fighting men. Stephen, in, in other news, Nikolai Patrushev, Russian Security Council secretary and one of Putin's closest allies, has said that the events in Ukraine are no longer a clash between Moscow and Kiev. Instead, Russia is supposedly now fighting a US-led NATO military alliance in Ukraine. What is your reaction to a statement like this? And does it actually mean anything? Well, what it means is that um, the, that Putin and his, as you say, his coterie around him have had to move away rather from that original uh, claim that they were fighting Nazis and, uh, in Ukraine because 
many of their soldiers have found that, uh, you know, there aren't any Nazis there. Um, and this is this is a, 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 a uh, another lie that's been put forward to try and justify while they're still there. Remember, almost a year ago, 24th of February last year, when uh, Russian troops went in, they thought they would take Kiev in three days. They thought that the Ukrainians would welcome them. They thought that the uh, uh, that Zelensky would would be either killed or would would run away. Um, uh, and of course, all those plans went to pot because the intelligence was awful. Um, a year on almost, they, they, they can't still be saying, well, we're looking for Nazis. Um, they've had to find another uh, another idea for it. And this idea that, oh, it's it's now really between the US and, and the, the, it's, it's the West and particularly the US using Ukraine to fight us is just a way of trying to get their people to believe that there is still a reason why, uh, why the Russian army is fighting uh, in Ukraine. Um, so that's it's it's the latest lie, and and it is a lie, of course. Um, yes, the West has been helping with uh, with weaponry, uh, and must continue to do so if the Ukrainians are going to hold out and indeed win. Um, but then, you know, Russia has also been taking in weaponry from its great allies, Iran, North Korea. Um, it, it's it's um, not an even battle in terms of numbers, in terms of numbers that that the Russian army can call up in, of, of manpower, but in terms of equipment. Um, the, the West can make sure that Ukraine is well equipped. And if the Russians want to describe that as a war between uh, Russia and NATO or Russia and the US, then they will do so. And some Russians will believe them. But um, really, it doesn't take away from the fact that this is just a vicious war started by Putin for no real reason at all. But he wants to recreate his empire. Thank you, Stephen, for your insights. That was the Russia analyst Stephen Diel. It's 12.10 here in London. Here is Monaco Scalter Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. China has stopped issuing short-term visas to individuals from South Korea and Japan in retaliation for COVID restrictions on Chinese travelers. Beijing says the move will remain in place until discriminatory entry restrictions against China are lifted as the nation continues to battle with a surge in infections. Brazil's former president, Jair Bolsonaro, has been admitted to a hospital in Florida with abdominal pain. It comes a day after thousands of his supporters stormed government offices in the Brazilian capital. Bolsonaro left Brazil for the U.S. about 10 days ago after refusing to take part in the handover of power to President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva last week. And the first-ever satellite mission launched from the UK soil has ended in failure. The rocket ignited and appeared to be ascended correctly before suffering an anomaly. The satellites it was carrying could not be released and were lost. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Galosa. Let's get a roundup of the day's papers now with the broadcaster journalist Juliet Lindley. Juliet joins us from our headquarters in Zurich. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Marcus. Thanks for joining us today. Um, Shall we start with the New York Times? What kind of stories have you spotted from that paper? Yes, so Prince Harry's book came out today and we've read so many leaks already. We've all got a bit of spare fatigue, if you want. But I was captivated by the column on the front page of today's New York Times because it's penned by the daughter of America's most dashing Republican president who also wrote an autobiography 30 years ago, lambasting her family 
and who now wholly regrets it. So Patty Davis is the daughter of Ronald and Nancy Reagan. And she candidly says, please don't buy my autobiography, written in 92, because she says it was a mistake to fling open the gates of our troubled family life. So the former first daughter says she understands Prince Harry's desire to tell the truth, to set the record straight, and to get his family to understand him better. But President Reagan's daughter says, not only do people generally not do well when embarrassed and exposed in public, but most importantly, there isn't just one truth and the other people who inhabit our story have their truths as well. So her suggestion to the spare, be quiet. Silence gives you room and distance. And she says, like she did, Harry may well look back and wish he could unspeak what he said. Fair enough. Well, Juliet, you obviously are a former Vatican correspondent and it's been busy days there. A lot of news coming from Vatican. What have you spotted this time around? Yes, so the case of a teenage girl who went missing nearly 40 years ago has been reopened by the Vatican's tribunal. The story was even featured in a Netflix documentary, Marcus, and it's by far Italy's most famous cold case, and it's captivated Italians for decades. So back in June 83, 1983, Emanuela Orlandi, whose father was a Vatican functionary and who lived within the Vatican city-state, she went missing on her way home from a music lesson. She was 15 years old, and the truth has never been unearthed. But there there has been ongoing wild speculation about what happened to her. Some said that KGB abducted her to pressure then-Pope John Paul II over his support for Solidarność in Poland. Others said she was kidnapped in a bid to secure the release of John Paul II's uh, would-be assassin, Aliachka, who shot the Pope in 1981. And there were even rumours Emanuela was taken by the Italian mafia to secure a reimbursement for losses in Vatican Bank scandals and that she became a victim of a ring of Vatican pedophiles. Also sorts of speculation, but now following pressure from her family, a formal inquest has been opened by the Vatican's tribunal into what and how much the Vatican knows about this missing girl. So what does that mean in practice? Are are we going to get some more information now? Well, hopefully, yes. The Vatican has consistently claimed ignorance about the case, but there's been so much talk about surely they know something. There are papers that haven't been released. So the hope is now that uh, there will be a bit more clarity, although who knows what they're going to unearth and who knows what the truth is, Marcus. Do you think any of these theories sound credible? Was it the KGB mafia or what? behind uh, this disappearance. I guess my guess is as good as yours. Which of them sounds credible to I, I wouldn't be able to pronounce myself on that. Well, let's continue with other news then. Also yes. from the Vatican this time around. Uh, yes. Interesting. A lot of books coming out. Another oh, one. God. Everyone's telling their truths, aren't they? It seems to be the new thing for 2023. So also making the headlines at the Vatican is a meeting that took place yesterday between the Pope and former Pope Benedict's closest aide, Georg Genswein. So Genswein has written a book that came out right off the bat, right after Pope Benedict's funeral that was just last week, in which he describes the strains that existed during the 10 years during which there were two pontiffs living within the ancient Vatican walls. So the 66-year-old German archbishop was the Pope Emeritus's right-hand man for 20 years, and many are now asking what will happen to him. Another job in Rome, or will he be sent elsewhere in the world, far from the current Pope? Genswein describes in the book how he was never able to reach a climate of trust with Pope Francis. So Pope Francis doesn't come very well out of the book. But no details have been released of what they discussed yesterday. But uh, we should see soon enough where the Archbishop will be assigned next. So shall we look at first, like, what is all this criticism about? Why, why, why is this former personal secretary of the late Pope Benedict criticising the current pontiff? 
Well, he was the BFF of Pope Benedict, and the, the two popes, it's no secret, they came from completely uh, opposing uh, camps, if you want. Pope Benedict, extremely conservative. Pope Francis, slightly more liberal, more progressive, some say. Some say he had a bit of a dictatorial attitude. So certainly that there was no love lost, if you want, um, at a certain level between the two of them. And Genswein has just flung open the gates on, on that, if you wish, on the two polar opposites. So what we saw recently was was the current Pope joining the funeral of his predecessor, which is something that hasn't been seen for hundreds of years. I'm wondering how familiar is the Vatican then with this kind of tell-all books? Uh, it doesn't happen very often that the private secretary of a pope publishes something like this. So it's a pretty, it was stunning to see. And it was interesting to see how fast it came out. He obviously had written it and had, had probably agreed with uh, Joseph Ratzinger that as soon as he passed away, he would hand it over to the publishers. How controversial is something like this in the Vatican? Very, very. You don't have a lot. I mean, it's a bit, you don't want to make comparisons with the Windsors, but how often have the Windsors written tell-all books? It's not that common because part of the mystery is just not saying a lot of what can be speculated about, but is not given as a truth. Well, Juliet, I haven't actually spoken to you in 2023 yet. This is the first time and I think it's a good moment to look back into 2022 and what was going on in Switzerland. You've got some kind of list of the top Swiss inventions from last year. What do you have there? It is indeed a great story that I found on Swiss Info. And it's like the top Swiss inventions that you might have missed in 2022. So I'll give you the top three in my perspective. The first is a battery made out of paper. So it's a novel solution to help solve the huge problem of what to do once batteries are depleted. And scientists at the Swiss Federal Lab for Materials Testing have invented a battery made of paper and powered by salt and inks that's activated with just a few drops of water and has a consistent power of 1.2 volts. So this technology could be used within the next few years for single-use low-power electronics like medical diagnostic devices, for instance, Marcus. And then we've got another great invention, I think, which is an airborne virus detector. So Swiss researchers have created a biosensor system to detect viruses in indoor areas. Now, this technology could help healthcare workers who are at high risk, say, of COVID-19 infection in hospitals or nursing homes. The system is known as CAPS, and it's shown results similar to PCR tests, but you don't need to do um, any of the whole saliva uh, testing going on and the results are immediately available which would be great news for healthcare staff but also you could do this even in crowded areas say like crowded railway stations so that travelers could be aware of what the risks are and then finally we've got a Swiss invention that comes from scientists at Bern University and it's a gel that can treat skin cancer so they've developed a hydrogel that can be applied directly to melanomas which activates the body's defense system they've done a lot of testing on mice and clinical trials could start soon. Back to you, Marcus. Very good news there. Thank you very much, Juliet Lindley. What was a clever nation. Switzerland is... It is 12.19 here in London. You are with The Briefing.
Monaco's annual soft power survey has hit the newsstands and in it we consider some of the established and bizarre ways that countries project themselves abroad. But soft power like any power can backfire. There is little doubt that Qatar perceived its hosting of the World Cup as a major soft power triumph. But did it attract quite the kind of attention Qatar wanted? Earlier Andrew Miller spoke to Dr. Paul Michael Brannigan, senior lecturer in sport management and policy at Manchester Metropolitan University. Andrew began by asking Paul why Qatar wanted to host the World Cup in the first place. Well, I think it's a great question, Andrew. And I think the key thing there is if you have to really look at the regional sort of politics of Qatar. So Qatar is a small state in what historically has been quite a hostile region of the world. So one of the key things that Qatar's looked to do is two things. The first is overcome its invisibility on the world stage, number one. And number two is shore up its national safety and security. And this is really where the World Cup has really built into this. Qatar have been looking for a mechanism through which to promote itself on the global stage. Now, apart from a World Cup or Olympic Games, there's not really much else that can do that in the way these events can with their billions and billions of audience numbers, etc. So the World Cup really for Qatar has been about promoting itself on the world stage, number one. Number two, you know, really showcasing its right to sovereign independence and in doing so to shore up its national security. Clearly, it's given Qatar a greater profile on the world stage than it had before the World Cup began or indeed before it was announced that Qatar would be hosting it. But how do you think it is going for them as a soft power ploy in creating a favourable image of Qatar? Because it's occurred to me more than once amid all the criticism that they've had over the last few weeks in particular that whereas people have criticised countries like China and Russia, which have hosted high profile international tournaments in recent years, people know other things about China and Russia other than the shortcomings of their present governments. Whereas, as you were just sort of saying there, give or take its airline and Al Jazeera, nobody really knows very much about Qatar. Yeah, and I think this is is really key because I think what Qatar and the 2022 Cup remind us of is the inherent dangers associated with, first of all, raising international awareness of yourself, so trying to gain soft power, but also really using sport mega events in order to achieve such an outcome. So let's take Qatar's neighbour, the UAE, for example. It's hosted recently the Expo, arguably the largest non-sporting event there is on the planet, yet it hasn't received the kind of scrutiny that Qatar has around the World Cup. And we see this all the time. It's these countries that try to host these major sports events tend to actually get the brunt of international criticism. And as you alluded to right there, you know, there's a real irony here. Qatar's looked to use the World Cup to promote a positive image of itself on the global stage. But in doing so, the irony really here is that actually what it's done is potentially damage its image and actually raise awareness of some of its issues at home related to human rights abuses, accusations of corruption, etc., etc. Do you think the Qataris will have been genuinely surprised by the criticisms they've received, especially in the days just before it kicked off and indeed since? I can categorically tell you, Andrew, yes, they were shocked because I've asked them this question. I've sat with them and they've, they've told me this. 
So look, I mean, I think that they certainly weren't naive. Any host that hosts the Olympic Games or a World Cup or an event like this is going to get some sort of international scrutiny. They've certainly been surprised by the level at which Qatar has been scrutinized globally by such a sort of wide range of global actors. And I put that down to really, I think, the world's shock that Qatar was awarded this tournament, you know, and bearing in mind it beat off competition for the likes of the UK, Japan, Australia and the US. These are countries with a much richer football pedigree. So I think a lot of it is down to surprise. But yes, certainly the Qataris were surprised the level of scrutiny they've received. In particular, there's been scrutiny of the treatment of the many, many migrant workers who built these fabulous stadiums that the football is taking place in. There are a lot of figures doing the rounds about supposed deaths and injuries among those workers. What do we actually know for certain about that? Well, I think we know for certain that there have been serious you know, issues in Qatar, and this is certainly something that Qatar has admitted to in the past. You know, there's a lot of work that has taken place, but still an awful lot of work that needs to continue taking place in terms of improving the living and working conditions, particularly for uh, expatriate workers working within the construction industry. I don't think we know the exact figure of how many fatalities, very sad fatalities we've had on World Cup related infrastructure, because normally Qatar present or they class World Cup-related infrastructure as anything to do with the World Cups, not just stadiums, but it might be, for example, transport or whatever else. And obviously, we don't know how many actually get reported either. So I don't think we have a really clear understanding of exactly how many people have, have sadly died. What we do know for certain is there are issues. Qatar has continued working to try and rectify these issues, but there's a lot more work that needs to take place in, in regards to the human rights of the expatriate workers in Qatar. Is there any hope that the scrutiny it has attracted might have improved the lot of migrant workers in Qatar in the long term? I think it actually goes beyond that. And I think, yes, I mean, I think what we've tended to see, I think it's it's you know quite right that these hosts that want to host the major World Cup or Olympic Games, you know, they should really be meeting certain criteria. And I don't think Qatar really met the right kind of criteria in many people's eyes. So what's now happened is, of course, you know, the scrutiny has hopefully led to sustainable change. I can say it has led to some change. I would obviously can't say whether that will be sustainable beyond the World Cup. I really hope that that change continues and the, you know, the conditions for migrant workers continues to improve. We will have to wait and see. But what I like to think of one legacy here is that in future, these hosts or any host that actually bid for an Olympic Games or a World Cup, that they're more, you know, sort of social, political, cultural issues are taken in consideration. And that it's a much more of a stronger discussion point moving forward that, you know, if you're going to have the privilege of hosting these events, then you really need to have your house in order. So I hope that's a long term legacy for other countries. That was Dr. Paul Michael Brannigan. His book, Qatar and the 2022 FIFA World Cup Politics Controversy Change, is available now in hardback. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Finally in the programme, let's continue with the week's top fashion news. Monocle's fashion editor Natalie Theodosi joins me now. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Marcus. Natalie, quite busy days ahead. You are heading to Florence first for 
Beauty warm-up, after which you continue to Milan Men's Fashion Week and then later on to Paris for Fashion Week there as well. If we start with a look at what's big, what's going to be happening in Florence when you go there for, for Beauty, what do you expect? So yeah, there is a full schedule ahead for the menswear industry and uh, PT Uomo is quite uh, an important fair and, and kickstarts the season. Speaking to their CEO, Raffaello Napoleone, a little bit earlier, there's uh, an expectation that a lot of the buyers will be heading towards uh, the brands that are offering formal wear. He said that apparently even ties are in, which is, uh, which is new and... Uh, the business uh, that's focused on sport and streetwear is not performing as well. And uh, there's also a lot of efforts from their part to start bringing Korean and Japanese buyers back. So we expect a lot of international attendance and yeah, everyone looking for tailoring and getting dressed up a little bit more. I'm wondering, are there any specific catwalk shows you're looking forward to? Any Any headline names? Yes, so at PT, uh, most of the action is focused around the trade fair, but they always pick one or two names uh, as guest uh, designers of honor in a way that uh, that host catwalk shows. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the show of the British designer Martin Rose. Uh, she usually shows in London and... Uh, really references her upbringing in North London, whether it's by showing uh, on a street in Camden or in her old primary school. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see her work in Florence for a change and to see how she will maybe change her aesthetic a little bit or adapt, how she'll be influenced by, by the city. Uh, let's continue from Florence to Milan Men's Fashion Week there as well coming up. What do you expect? So in Milan, we are expecting some of our favorite um, tailoring brands to show from Canali to Brioni and Xenia. But the big news is um, Gucci's show, Gucci's opening uh, Milan Men's Fashion Week this Friday. And it will be the first show that they host that without uh, the creative director Alessandro Michele, who exited the brand last year after seven years. So he was such a known and beloved figure and he really shaped the identity of the brand so it will be really interesting to see what they will put together without anyone at the helm and it's something that also highlights a a trend that's going on I think brands putting a lot more attention on the name of the brand rather than having a celebrity designer take all the credit and uh, and the spotlight. How would you describe the different different um how different are these men's wear fairs? We're talking about Pitti Uomo in Florence, we're talking about Milan Men's Fashion Week. Up next we're talking about what's happening in Paris at Paris Men's Fashion Week. How different are they? I think um at PT there's a lot more focus on product and everything is centered around the trade fair and there's different booths that brands display their latest collections so there's more room for conversation to touch and feel products it's a lot more technical Uh, but also um, there's 
a lot of inspiration to take in by looking at what uh, that crowd wears in the, in the city. There, there's uh, years now a crowd called the PT Peacocks that mm-hmm. come dressed up in their tailoring and really uh, grab attention and inspire everyone. And then when you move on to Milan and Paris, there's a, little, a lot more showmanship. So I'm sure Gucci will be putting on a big show. Um, there's, they, they send you all around Milan uh, in different destinations and and there's a lot more spectacle and the crowd kind of changes from professionals to also um, celebrities, friends of the brand. Uh, there's, there's a little bit more star power in, in when you go into Milan and Paris. Paris Men's Fashion Week is the one we haven't covered properly yet. Uh, just quite quickly, if you may, what are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to seeing the Saint Laurent show. It's uh, their first time uh, back at the Paris Men's Fashion Week shows since the pandemic. So I think that will be quite an interesting one. But it will also be great to see some younger names for a change in Paris, uh, from Grace Wales Bonner, who's a British designer, to Bodhi, who's coming from LA for the first time. Usually Paris is reserved for those big heritage names. Uh, But more of this up-and-coming talents have been going to Paris on their own terms and showing us a slightly different view of, of Paris with slightly more intimate, less upscale venues and, and shows. So that seeing that mix of big names and younger ones, I think, will make this Paris Men's Fashion Week really interesting. Sounds exciting. And Natalie, obviously, we'll be hearing much more from you when you yeah. hit the road in the days to come. Monaco's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosi, there. Thank you very much for joining us. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carlotta Rebello. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday here in London, 7 a.m. in Boston. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening.